I'm Jesse Thorne, host of Bullseye, inviting you to a live taping of my show with my pal, actor and comedian, Paul Shear. It's June 13th at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at laist.com slash events. On Inheriting, Bao Trong was born in the U.S., but he longs for Vietnam, a country his father left behind. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. So how does he tell his dad that? Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. California has 58 counties. Last month, Governor Gavin Newsom declared a drought emergency in two of them, Sonoma and Mendocino. This week, Newsom added 39 more counties to that drought emergency list. But here's the thing, if it's always like this in California, is it still a drought or just how it is here, a really dry place to live? It's all ahead on Take Two. I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian school teacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LA Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for joining us. Coming up. It will include the highest historic investment in K-14 through education in California's history. Just in the last hour, Governor Gavin Newsom proposed a big spending plan that includes $2.7 bucks for transitional kindergarten. We're going to discuss that push for universal preschool and the other elements of the plan in about 30 minutes. First, though, it is getting dry out there. The governor declared a drought emergency in 41 counties earlier this week. And the U.S. Drought Monitor has much of the state in the red, and that means extreme drought. But since we've been here before, not that long ago, the question I think we all have is, is it drought or just normal, just the way it is here in California? Here to discuss this, we have Peter Glick, a hydrologist and co-founder of the environmental think tank Pacific Institute. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right. So first off, Gavin Newsom's drought declaration, 41 counties, all in central and northern California. What does this mean, though, on a practical level to declare a drought emergency? Well, what it means, first of all, and probably best of all, is we're finally beginning to pay attention to what is pretty clearly a very severe drought in California. It's a declaration to the public that the state's in a drought and that we need to do things differently, that water agencies need to start informing their customers about what they need to do, that we need to start investing in responses to the drought. It's really the first step in what we probably should have been doing several months ago. When it comes to actually distributing water, does this do something to that in terms of where the water goes and how it's thought and and planned out? Well, the distribution of water is pretty much set in California. When we have a lot of water available, water goes to farms and to cities according to longstanding water rights. Uh, During a drought, we already know that farms get cut back. A lot of farms aren't going to get the water they want. (laughs) Actually, that's true even in a normal year now. Um, And cities sometimes see little reductions in water availability. But what it really means is we need to be saving water so that uh, in the event that this drought is not just a two-year drought, and, and this is the second year of drought, but a longer one, that there's still water for the fish and there's still water for farms and there's still water for our cities. Now, just to be absolutely clear, does this declaration ask anything of local utilities or, or people right now, or just gives counties and state agencies flexibility to act as they see fit? Yes, it absolutely is basically telling water agencies, you have to now start telling your customers that there's a drought and you have to start asking sometimes 
pretty formally requesting mandatory reductions in water use over time. For example, in the 2014, the last drought that we had, Governor Brown asked for a 20% reduction in urban water use and then a 25% mandatory reduction in water use, and most agencies were able to achieve it. But this first step is declare the drought and start informing customers that they need to start saving water. And you know what, Peter, here's the thing. You know, in early April, I know you wrote an op-ed bemoaning the fact that officials had not yet talked about drought when it was really obvious that it was here. Um, is Gavin Newsom's declaration too late? And and why do you think we don't talk about drought more? It just seems like it has to be an emergency and then we pay attention to it. Well, I think that's true. Uh, it's not too late, this declaration. It is late. You know, our water year, when we get most of our water, runs from October to April. And so by April, it was pretty clear, frankly, it was clear before that, that the state was in a severe drought. And I would have liked to have seen this declaration earlier so that we could all start saving water earlier. Um, But we have droughts in the past. Californians know what to do when we're told that there's a drought and when we're asked to respond People do respond. We see cuts in water use. We see investments in better washing machines and dishwashers and toilets. People let their lawns go brown or, better yet, remove their lawns or don't wash their cars as much. We we do step up when we're told to step up, when we're told that there's a crisis. And that's the situation we're in now. Peter, does it make you cringe ever when you hear, say, on the news that, hey, it looks like we're getting out of the drought. It looks like we're getting some I mean, when when that message starts getting pumped out there. <laughs> well, so obviously we're not in that situation now. No. We're in the middle of a drought. Um, it is true that that never in California do we have as much water as we want to do all the things that we want to do for our farms and for our cities and especially, frankly, for our ecosystems. And so there's really never a time when Californians should be wasting water, when we should say, oh, look, there's plenty of water now. I can, I can let my, the water run down my sidewalk. I can wash my car, let the water run. You know, we can waste water. And that's, that's not the way California is anymore, if, frankly, it ever was. We need that message all the time that there are smart things that we can do to do the things we want with less water. And it's especially true during a drought, but frankly, it's always true. Because I saw once uh, someone someone was having a slip and slide on, in their front yard in the, in the middle of uh, in the middle of summer. Not this summer, but it was a previous summer when it seemed like we had at least a little bit of water saved up. And and the thought was, hey, you know, I, I saw it on the news. There's we're, we're good right now. I mean, good right now it still means bad overall, doesn't it? Well, you know, I would never I would never tell anybody, no matter how bad the drought is. <laughs> not to run their slip and slide for their kids. (laughs) I mean, there are big things that we can do to save a lot of water. And we're not in a situation where we turn on the tap and nothing comes out. We have a good water system. We just have to protect it. And we have to not waste the water in things that are really unnecessary. You know, we we should get rid of our lawns and put in drought-proof gardens. We should get rid of those old wasteful washing machines and toilets and put in the really efficient ones. We should grow more food with less water, with better irrigation systems for our agriculture. There, There are big things that we could do that we ought to be doing all the time. Now, Peter, the big question, the big picture question, at least, is this a drought or just, as we like to say, the new normal in California? Yeah. So it is a drought in the sense that we're not getting as much water as we want to do the things we want. That's sort of a a simple definition of drought. But it's also true that the droughts that we're seeing now are more frequent and more extreme than the droughts of the past. And that's happening, unfortunately, because humans are fundamentally changing the climate. Climate change is a real thing. And among the most significant impacts of climate change are changes to these extreme hydrologic events. So we had a very, very bad five-year drought from 2011 to 2015, the worst five-year drought on record. It was followed in 2017 by literally the wettest year on record for California. And these extreme events are symptoms of the growing influence of climate change on our water supplies. And that's another reason why we just have to start thinking about managing the system we have, which was built for yesterday's climate, differently so is it a question of, of when people say, well, this drought is because of climate change? That's not a full enough answer. It's, it's, it's about what humans have done to influence and impact climate change. Yes, that's exactly right. No okay. one is saying, I'm a climate scientist by training also. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, none of us are saying this drought was caused by climate change or that flooding event or hurricane was caused by climate change. What we are saying, however, is all of these extreme events are now influenced by climate change. They're made more extreme. They're made they're made more frequent. You know, we're, our demand for water is going up because temperatures are going up, and that increases what crops need to grow. Higher temperatures means more evaporation. The storms off the Pacific are increasingly influenced by human-caused climate change, and that's the way to think about it. Does that mean that we should have a mindset of mitigation instead, learning how to live with this and, and learning how to make the best of it? Well, we have to do two things. We have to mitigate in the sense of reducing human influence on the climate. And that's the discussion that we're having about cutting fossil fuels and cutting emissions of greenhouse gases. Because the more we do that, and California is moving forward on that, the more we cut those emissions, the less severe future climate changes will be. But the other side of it is we have no choice but to adapt to those climate changes that we can no longer avoid. We, we see climate change all around us now. And even if we stopped emissions today, there would still be impacts of future climate change. So we have to do both. We have to mitigate and we have to adapt. And that's true for our water system and, and many of our other systems that are sensitive to climate. We're talking to Peter Glick, hydrologist and co-founder of the environmental think tank Pacific Institute. Uh, among many of his uh, announcements this week, uh, Peter, the, the governor proposed some $5 billion worth of water projects. Uh, what in that plan stands out to you as a, as a smart thing to try and make happen? Yeah, so I was happy to see that. He's proposed a $5 billion investment over the next four years for a whole range of water-related things uh, that are not the traditional things that we think about. They're not the new big dams, which, frankly, we can't build anymore in California, but they're for drinking water and wastewater infrastructure, especially for some disadvantaged communities in the Central Valley that don't have, even today, safe drinking water or good wastewater. Uh, there's some money for... Uh, implementing the ground, the new groundwater law that's trying to bring our groundwater back into balance. Uh, there's money for water conveyance to help fix some canals that are falling apart. Uh, there's money for some ecosystems uh, for restoring some of our fisheries and tidal wetlands and floodplains, which are really important in California. There's quite a bit of money for a lot of important things here. You know, it's just a proposal. The money's not been been allocated yet. It's not. Right. I'm not sure really where it will end up. So the devil's, of course, in the details. But it's a it's a step in the right direction for a lot of the things we need to be doing. Earlier, you mentioned how maybe we should start to learn or figure out how to grow produce more efficiently here in California. And we know that agriculture is one of the biggest users of water in California. But how can the state maybe help farmers be even more efficient than they are or maybe need to be? Yeah, so 80% of the water that we, we take out of the system in California goes to agriculture. It goes, goes to grow the food and, and vegetables that we love out of the Central Valley, which is a fantastic place to grow crops. And farmers are very smart. When they're given the right kinds of signals, uh, they will change what they do. When they're given incentives to replace old, inefficient irrigation systems or groundwater pumps with more efficient ones, they, they'll do that when markets tell them they shouldn't be growing water-intensive crops, but more uh, water-efficient crops, they, they will do that. So part of what the state can do is provide those incentives, provide resources to swap out irrigation systems for more efficient ones, replace canals that leak with canals that don't leak. Uh, those are kinds of things that are already happening. Farmers are already moving in that direction. But we have a long way to go to become really efficient in California agriculture to grow more food with less water and to end the overdraft of groundwater, which in the long run is simply unsustainable here. Yeah. I, you know, in, the, in Los Angeles, I know that we get a lot of our water from the Colorado River. How is that supply holding out? Yeah, so that's also an issue. Um, we do get a lot of water from the Colorado River. And this year, for the first time in history, there may be a shortage, what's called a shortage declaration on the Colorado. The Colorado is shared by seven states and Mexico. We have rules that allocate who gets to take what water. And there's so little water now in the Colorado and in the Colorado reservoirs, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, that there's going to be an official shortage declaration. And what that means first is that Arizona and Nevada get cut back. California has more of a senior right, so it's not going to affect us this year. But if water levels continue to drop in the Colorado, in those reservoirs, even California will 
see a cutback in supplies from the Colorado River. And that's another reason why we shouldn't be complacent in Southern California. You know, Southern California has done a lot to, to prepare for this drought, but we're vulnerable everywhere to what, what's happening. I was about to ask you that, Peter, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the drought emergency was not declared in Southern California, but that risk of complacency, I mean, we're all connected. It's, it's California. I know there's Southern, Central, and Northern, but it's all one uh, big state organism. So how do you think all of us should maybe think about how and, and what is happening in the state right now with water? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a mistake that, that Southern California wasn't part of the drought declaration. And I think it's a mistake that Southern California water agencies are being a little complacent about this and saying, well, we've done a good job and we have lots of water in our reservoirs and we're getting our Colorado River water, so we don't have to worry about it as, as much. We are all connected. Southern California is connected to the, to the Colorado River. It gets water from the state water project from the north and from the, the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, there's a lot more that could be done in Southern California, despite the great efforts that have been made so far, to do things differently, to use water more efficiently, to use more highly treated wastewater than take water out of our natural ecosystems. Um, and that message, I'm afraid, still isn't quite getting getting across. Southern California water agencies should really be saying there is a drought, and here are the things that we in Southern California can do. Every gallon of water that we don't use is a gallon that stays in our reservoirs or yeah. in our rivers. And if it stays in our rivers, it helps our ecosystems. If it stays in our reservoirs, it's available next year if next year is dry as well. Peter, I'll be the slip and slide police. I'll do it. I'll tell people to stop. That's Peter Glick, a hydrologist and co-founder of the environmental think tank Pacific Institute. Peter, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye, inviting you to a taping of my show with my pal, actor, comedian, podcaster, memoirist, Paul Shear. Hey, Paul. That's me. Hey, Jesse. I am so excited to join you to talk about my brand new book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma. We're going to have a great time at the Crawford on June 13th. Come on out. Get tickets now. LAist.com slash events. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Martinez. California has had a new attorney general for just a few weeks, but Rob Bonta has been a bit of a busy guy. From hate crimes to law enforcement to the effects of social media on youth, his office has made a number of announcements. For more on that, we have with us Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED and co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. Hey, Marisa. It's not Friday. I'm used to talking to you on Friday. I know. Like, well, it, you know, my cocktail. This is the most Friday feeling Wednesday of the <laughs> we've ever had. There you go. How about that? Okay. Now we've talked a, a lot about the rise in, in anti-Asian violence across the state. Uh, what are the specifics of Rob Bonta's plan, the new uh, AG here in California, to address that? Yeah, so he's essentially creating a new bureau within the Department of Justice um, that I think is aimed at kind of better training. Um, you know, attorneys within his office and having them really focus on this question. Um, and, you know, I think it remains to be seen kind of how they use that bureau. Is it just to prosecute cases? Is it to do more education? Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of debate happening right now, especially among Democrats about the right way to respond to hate crimes, because a lot of what they've pushed in recent years have not been things like, you know, longer criminal sentences, but rather alternatives like restorative justice. So I would expect we might see a mix of this. And I do know that one of the challenges with hate crimes just broadly is the, the data is not very um, reliable. You know, mm. a lot of places that are 
maybe more progressive or diverse tend to have higher rates of hate crimes than you know places in the south where we know racism exists as well and so i think um we might see a combination of efforts from this new ag when it comes to conversations between rob bonta and and mayors around california what do you think they'll look and sound like i mean is there something to be learned from from the meetings that the data maybe cannot communicate yeah, I mean, I think some of it, like, again, there's the power of the bully pope, right? Just for Bonta to stand up and as the first Filipino American attorney general to talk about this issue. Um, but yeah, I think absolutely communicating with mayors and local police departments and really getting, like I said, training, understanding um, how to recognize what might be a hate crime. And then also, you know, another area we've seen him talk about just in the past is this idea of restorative justice. Is there a way to do this without you know, necessarily just locking somebody up forever. So I do think that communication with, to your point, mayors, which, you know, pick police chiefs is going to be really important. What work has Rob Bonta slated for the Racial Justice Bureau? Um, so, you know, it, it, it it's going to include six attorneys and a supervising deputy attorney general. It's going to be under the civil rights uh, section of, of this um you know, of the Bureau. So I think the fact, like just where he's putting it is really important. Um, And I'm not totally sure yet, like all of the details on how he wants to go about this, because um, this is something new. and, And like, I think some of the work is going to be up to these attorneys to really figure out where they can put their focus, is it coming in and supporting local prosecutions or is it more taking them over? I mean, those are always gonna be questions that the AG is gonna face when when we talk about any types of crimes. Um, And I think that for him, like I said, I mean, there's always this mix of symbolism and sort of practical reality. I mean, the truth is most hate crime statutes in California are not going to be the underlying uh, prosecutorial approach, right? You would you would get, say, prosecuted for an assault and with a hate crime enhancement. Um, but as I said, this is not a guy who's been really in favor of harsher criminal penalties. So I think it's going to be an interesting kind of line for him to walk. Yeah, enhancements with, with Rob Bonta is kind of the same as George Gascon here in, uh, in L.A in that, uh, yeah, they're they're kind of trying to steer away from that. But that puts everybody, I think, uh, Marisa, in a tricky situation, right? Especially if you're if you're the family of a victim of, uh, of one of these crimes. No, absolutely. And I think this is really an interesting um, inflection moment in California around this criminal justice conversation that we've really been having for the last decade. You know, people like Gascon in L.A. and the progressive DA here in San Francisco, Chase Boudin, are getting pushback from communities and some victims groups. But there's other groups who have really come up and said, hey, look, you know, communities of color have been left behind in a lot of these victims discussions in the past. Um, you know, I just know a from my own experience that even within a family that has been victimized or, you know, are survivors of crime, you can have real differences of opinions yeah. on what they want to see. The Racial Justice Bureau is going to include racial bias in policing. But from his appointment, Bonta have pledged more oversight on police misconduct in general, including excessive use of force. How does uh, Bonta intend to carry out these promises? So there's a couple things here. There's a bill that he um, helped draft that actually takes the investigations of um, deadly shootings and other deadly police encounters out of the hands of local police and prosecutors and puts them in the AG's office. So he's going to be in charge of getting that up and running. And that could really be a game changer because what we have seen in the past is the reticence of local prosecutors in some situations to really go after police officers um, who, you know, some people argue have have kind of stepped outside the boundaries of the law. Now, he's still going to be, you know, kind of potentially stymied if he wants to pursue some of those investigations by some of the laws that exist. I mean, that's part of the conversation here is can you even prosecute police officers? but I think the the other big question we have on our side of things in the media is how open his office is going to end up being around police misconduct yeah. records. He voted for the bill, SB 1421, that was supposed to open up a lot of this records. His predecessor, Javier Becerra, who, you know, on a lot of issues is very left-leaning, was um, fought it in court. KQED sued. And, and just last week, um, we got a judgment with the, the judge essentially saying, you have to not only produce the records you hold that that local um, 
police agencies gave you, but we also want you to produce the reports the AG's office has done assessing whether some, you know, use of force cases, some police shootings were um, actually justified. That's something they fought. The thing is, A, he's saying he wants to do all this, but he hasn't done it yet. And, you know, on one side, it's been a couple weeks, um, but the judge gave them all the way until the end of September to produce some of these records. So I think we're going to have to see how quickly they do it. And if there's individual cases they try to fight uh, disclosure on, or if he really does move forward with uh, a much less opaque kind of approach than his predecessor. And I remember uh, Becerra, his predecessor, really frustrated a lot of progressives when it came uh, to police reform. Um, but I know Bonta had a pledge to investigate uh, police shootings, but what's his stance on how the state uh, should handle civilian deaths and police shootings? Because it, would it be a shift from what Javier Becerra did when he was AG? I think, you know, Becerra lobbied against some of the legislation that has now you know, result that has passed and will result in the AG's office taking over more cases. So we didn't really know on an individual case basis, like whether he would have, you know, uh, filed harsher charges. But I think the entire positioning of Bonta on this issue is different than where Becerra came in. You know, Becerra is very progressive on health care, uh, on immigration issues. I don't, he didn't have as long of a track record of, as Bonta on a lot of these police misconduct and, and, and just general police oversight issues. So if you look at his legislative record, it would stand to reason that Bonta would take a very different approach. Um, you know, he's in a new role and I think he's trying to kind of figure out a way to work with police as well. But I, 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 just everything he's said and done, it stands to reason that he would go a little further than Becerra ever did. And the crazy thing is, we've talked about this before, Marisa, he's in a new role, but he's basically running <laughs> for his job already, right? right? I mean, that's it's, it's coming up very, very fast. Yeah, and I think this is where, like, you know, the stuff you brought up with the Racial Justice Bureau, not just dealing with hate crimes, but things like white supremacy and biased policing, those are opportunities for Bonta, right? And 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 some of them are areas that he might be able to find some common ground with law enforcement. But we're already seeing uh, Sacramento DA Anne-Marie Schubert uh, challenge him. A former U.S. attorney in L.A. has thrown his hat in the ring. And I think that um, Bonta is going to be, you know, <laughs> working real hard eh, to, like, raise the money, kind of... Uh, uh, reward the people who brought him to the party, his constituents and, and civil rights groups and others who really pushed for this appointment, but also try to find that middle ground so he doesn't look, you know, he, he can't be attacked as soft on crime or anti-police or all those things. Yeah, it's tough because, yeah, I mean, he's setting a tone, right, for his tenure as AG, which is uh, a very, very short one. But then, as we mentioned, he's got to find a way to seek re-election right away as well. So you set a tone, but is that tone uh, something that you would set if you weren't running for the job immediately? That's kind of uh, the weird spot he's in. Yeah, and I mean, that's true for most politicians to some extent, right? But like, I do think um, Bonta as this person who pushed things like bail reform in the legislature who voted for or often put his name on legislation over police misconduct and bias um he has a lot to prove and i think a lot of progressives and civil rights activists have been really disappointed with our last two ags you know back to now vp kamala harris feeling like she said the right things maybe on the campaign trail but didn't follow it through um so you know bonta is going to have to figure out how to how to navigate that um but I will say I don't, you know, unlike somebody who maybe had to go through an election first, it, it's an interesting question around how much does he need law enforcement support? And is that calculation different than it was, you know, even four or five years ago? Um, because I do think that, you know, there's been some changes in public opinion around law enforcement who used to be really this like group that if you were running for anything, you wanted their support. Uh, Bont has even said he's not going to take money from DAs or police officers or, or their associations. So that's a real change in itself. I think outside of the state's borders, Marisa, California is seen as this big blue monolith. <laughs> that is nope, not, that is not, not the case. No. Nope. <laughs> Marisa Lagos, political correspondent for KQED, co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. Marisa, thanks a lot. Thanks, eh? All right, moving on. Uh, young Latino and black Angelinos are lagging way behind in getting the COVID-19 vaccine. At a high school in one of the least vaccinated areas of L.A., KPCC health reporter Jackie Fortier spoke with a principal and high school seniors about getting the vaccine. 
When the pandemic forced schools to go online, Principal Cynthia Gonzalez saw participation nosedive. Over half of the students at her high school in South L.A. stopped attending. We just lost students. Like, we just, kids just stopped showing up, like, in mass. I have 500 kids, maybe 200 will show up a day. She watched as students dropped out to work full-time at swap meets or in grocery stores to help pay the bills. Everything from students losing family members, losing parents to them having to start working because they lost parents and now they have to help be like head of household. So in mid-April, when teenagers 16 and over could get the Pfizer vaccine, Gonzalez thought they would jump at the chance. She helped coordinate a vaccine event, hoping to get more of her students back in the classroom. And then pretty much it went downhill from there. Her high school students weren't signing up. So she asked them, why not? That's when I realized that either their parents told them not to, or they themselves were scared to get it, or there was a lot of misinformation about the vaccine itself. South L.A. has some of the highest COVID-19 case rates of anywhere in the county. Now that new cases have subsided, it's one of the least vaccinated. Fewer than four in every 10 people in South L.A. has gotten a shot. Arturo is one of Gonzalez's students who hasn't been vaccinated. At 17, he needs his parents' permission, but his mom is concerned about side effects that she heard about. She started seeing other people, how they're getting allergic reactions off social media, I guess. He learned about COVID-19 vaccine reluctance from a different source. Joe Rogan, he creates a very entertaining podcast. And so I heard from him and Dave Chappelle. Arturo still wants to get vaccinated so he can live in the dorms when he starts college next fall. His classmate Natalia isn't so sure. She gets most of her vaccine information from word of mouth. I'm not really the type of person to, like, watch the news and stuff. Now, after months of hearing wild conspiracy theories, she doesn't know what to believe. I honestly don't know anything about vaccines. I'm also, like, just scared. I want to be safe, especially with my health. Her principal, Cynthia Gonzalez, says parents are swayed by sensational stories on Spanish language media, while students pay closer attention to false rumors on platforms like TikTok. That's what the kids are into, that and the YouTubers. Access rather than messaging has been the priority for the vaccine campaign. There are more than 40 vaccination sites at schools for students and their families. But L.A.'s school district and health department, neither of which are on TikTok, have struggled to find messaging that appeals to younger people. Now, as the rate of new COVID patients drops, so has demand for the vaccine. Here's Barbara Ferrer, director of the L.A. County Health Department. The lowest rates are among young Black and Latinx men and women. And it's among the 16 to 29-year-olds that we have the most work to do. Not only are they the least vaccinated, data show that Latinos have been more likely to die from the coronavirus. Crowded households and low-wage jobs that put them in contact with a lot of people are thought to be the biggest contributing factors. Principal Cynthia Gonzalez thinks high schools need to be the place where students learn about vaccine information. But with the school year ending next month, she's running out of time. It has to be our role. It has to be part of what we do if we expect to close this equity gap in trying to get our kids back to school like they are in other communities. High school senior Natalia has seen generic get vaccinated videos, but they haven't convinced her. The video didn't answer her vaccine questions. Maybe if like I've heard it from like a doctor or like someone that is trustworthy and someone like I know, I'll probably be able to trust that person and try to like learn from that person about the vaccines. College-bound students like Natalia may be pushed into a decision. Many California colleges and universities will require on-campus students to be vaccinated. Natalia says if that's the case, she'll get the shots. A college education is more important to her than vaccine fears. Covering health, I'm Jackie Fortier. After a year of dealing with the coronavirus pandemic and all of the terrible things that went along with it, I don't think California Governor Gavin Newsom expected to much to have much cash in the state's pockets, but he does, and he has been doling it out the last few weeks. Today, a little bit more. This time, cash for kids. Find out all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us. on inheriting. To Tuan Trong, his home country is a lost country. 
what's keeping you from going back to Vietnam? The communists. Uh, I, 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 can't, I can't stand to see them. But his son Bao longs to live there, the very country Tuan fled. Being homesick for a, a place that's never been home. Listen to Inheriting from LAS Studios and the NPR Network, wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Amy Martinez. After an unexpected tax windfall for the upcoming fiscal year, Governor Gavin Newsom unveiled a $23 billion education budget for K-12 students across the state this afternoon. The plan includes everything from funding transitional kindergarten to the creation of college savings accounts for low-income students. Governor Newsom also said that school districts that do not return to full in-person learning this fall would be ineligible for state funding. Ed Source reporter John Fensterwald is here to tell us some more. John, this budget is huge, has a lot of parts to it, including funding for transitional kindergarten. What are the highlights uh, to you? Yeah, that's right. It is uh, a record-setting budget. And the governor today introduced what he called a blueprint for transforming schools over the next five years. He's using this with about $20 billion in surplus out of uh, what will be you know, a $100 billion uh, budget for K-12, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and the college and, savings account, that, that one stuck out to me. Yeah, that's new. There are districts that have done this before, the college promise where you put in anywhere from 50 to $100 to a, a student who's coming in first grader, kindergartner, and then it's invested over time. And by the time the student graduates, it has a little bit of a nest egg, maybe triple if interest rates and investments are good to put towards college. And so the governor's proposing a $2 billion for, uh, for every entering first grader would get $500 and $1,000 for foster children and homeless children. Nothing's been done nationally of scale like this, but then again, California always does things big when <laughs> when it does something. John, the uh, teacher pipeline programs to attract more teachers to high concentration districts. So what does that mean, high concentration districts? Yeah, that means those districts where there is the largest concentration of low-income children and English learners under the local control funding formula. They call it a concentration because it triggers at a certain percentage, happens to be 55%. When you have 55% of those, you begin to get extra money. So the governor is particularly saying that there are certain programs that would be geared towards those districts that are so-called concentration grants. And and one of those would would be uh, the full funding of uh, summer school and uh, after-school programs. We've talked about that before. California has it under Proposition 49, which Governor Schwarzenegger started, but we've never had enough to do it. So if a governor wants to phase this in and have every child in these districts will be uh, entitled to a well-run after-school program and summer school. Now, I know transitional kindergarten has been a dream for a lot of people for a long time. Here's a Newsom talking about it. And that blueprint includes creating a new grade and fully implementing a commitment that all four-year-olds will get high-quality instructional education by creating that new grade. TK will now be fully implemented in the state of California, $2.7 billion. John, I know it's still just a proposal right now, but if it becomes a reality, how much of a game-changer could it be for education in California? Well, it could be. Again, yes, you're right. We've been talking about this and never had the money to fund all of it. Right now, it exists for those four-year-olds who are close to going into kindergarten when they're five. This would be for all four-year-olds. And it really would address what, what's been called the readiness gap. And Professor Sean Reardon at Stanford did a, uh, a long a long uh, uh, longitudinal study it really looked at the impact of this and he said that really the difference in california is that kids come to school farther behind and transitional kindergarten would be one way to do that and not just an academic way but to get kids state of mind their habits of mind and socialization that's so important when you go to school the governor has uh, pledged a lot of money uh, for a lot of things this week what's the likelihood mm-hmm. john that this budget will keep and what would it take to get uh, the money in place to implement some of these plans well, the, the money is there. It's sort of one-time money that will be stretched out over a number of years. 
Why, by doing that, you hope that the economy will catch up in a couple of years. It will become full-time an ongoing program. You know, it, it's always some negotiation with the legislature. These, these programs that he suggested are not new. I mean, you know, teacher training, community partnership. We have mentioned community schools where all sorts of services, mental health services, family resources are available at the school. We've been talking about it and doing it incrementally. So the only the thing that was really new to me was the was the college scholarship program that the, that uh, you mentioned today. Because it it seems as if you know there's that saying uh, under promise over deliver, but it seems like l- lately Gavin Newsom has been promising big and maybe aiming to deliver big. Well, again, it's it's negotiable. The the yeah. big issue in California is whether local control or whether the state will dictate. And that's been one of the criticisms. And I guess from a district standpoint, one of the advantages, districts get to decide how to spend the money, in this case, billions of dollars. One thing that was different, I heard today, and it was was that he's proposing $2.6 billion for high-dose tutoring for students who are going back. That's always been one of the options. Now he's added this money and said, I want this. This is scientifically based. There's a lot of people talking about tutoring, really intensive tutoring in school a couple times a week with well-trained tutors. That's something new. That is the governor saying, this works. I want this use of this money. And that's that was different today. Now, over the past year, students across the states have been learning remotely due to the pandemic. And, and there have been gaps, uh, obvious gaps in resources like high-speed internet, computers, tutoring that's really yes. have resulted in, in big education disparities. Anything uh, in Newsom's budget try and lessen the gap created over the past year? Well, I did hear today, he said, uh, everything's got to uh, be a bait, come back and hear tomorrow. So we're going <laughs> to hear more about computers tomorrow when he, when he releases what's called the May revision of the state budget. There'll be something about that in that. And he today, he said, as he's reiterated, he, what he said before was that when schools reopen in the fall, we want to be back in full in-person instruction and that we will revert to what we had before. And that's what he said today. And, you know, he's gonna deal with the computers and, and you know, there are lots of things. Students are coming back. Many of them are alienated from school. They've had all kinds of, of loss and trauma. And so, you know, we've got to face with that too. And, and we'll see what happens when, when that, when stu- uh, school resumes. Well, so the, on the reopening thing, really quick, John, yeah. one last thing here, because that's where it yeah. seemed like there was a bit of a carrot and stick situation with Newsom. Uh, reopenings yeah. fully is a re- requirement for funding. So I'm wondering how does he plan to deal with districts that maybe are unsure about a full return? Because I can imagine that this is going to disproportionately affect low-income schools. Well, it has so far, as you mentioned, the carrot. The carrot was out there, $2 billion if you go back to school and very few yeah. actual students are back, particularly low-income students, disproportionately have not returned to school, even though they've had the option. What happens now, it's a little different. As of June 30th, the current system where we had distance learning expires. So we go back to what it was. What it was was full person in full uh, instruction in class with a certain amount of minutes and a certain amount of days per year, and that becomes the fallback. That's John Fensterwald, reporter for EdSource. John, as always, thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. You know, I got to admit, over the last few years, I don't know if I care as much about movie awards. I know they're a big deal and all, but I don't know if I care if that matters if I go watch a movie or if it makes it better in my eyes. John Horn's going to join us in just a few minutes. We're going to get into that more on uh, on the lot. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. I'm LA's food editor, Gab Chabran. So we are going to do the chicken katsu damburi. A taco is not just a taco. A pizza is not just a pizza. And noodles aren't just noodles. We focus on all natural ingredients, okay? Everything is by hand. I explore how food connects us to the social fabric of Southern California. Vietnamese sandwich shop here on the corner of Board and North Broadway in Chinatown. And tells the region's story. LA's independent journalism, fact-based journalism.
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. You've heard of the Hollywood theme game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Well, how about an actor whose career spans working with Charlie Chaplin, Orson Welles, and Amy Schumer? Plus, and the Oscar goes to, well, maybe no one because no one will care about the awards anymore. Time to go on the lot. All right, Rebecca Hegan is off this week, but we're joined now by KPCC's John Horn. Hey, John. Hey, hey. How's it going? Good, good. All right, now, NBC. NBC says it will not broadcast next year's Golden Globes. I know uh, you have never been a big <laughs> fan of the show or its presenters, uh, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, but is this the end of the Golden Globes for good? You said it. Let's hope so. Uh, <laughs> even though right now it's a one-year suspension. I mean, I think you could teach some sort of class with the Golden Globes as a case study. And I'm not sure what the class would be called, the importance of being frivolous, how to fool some of the people all the time. I mean, if you put anybody in Hollywood on a witness stand and had them take an oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth and ask them, are the Golden Globes a sham? Even in a town full of liars and fabulous, the answer would be yes, they're a sham. It's an award show voted on by a handful of random people, a few of whom may actually write about the movie business more than once in a blue moon, for publications like uh, the Estonian Movie Review Pilot Gazette Dispatch. (laughs) And they've got really odd and discriminatory taste. I mean, Avatar for Best Picture, not The Hurt Locker. I mean, Tom Cruise is returning all three of his Golden Globes. No knock on Tom Cruise, but that's three more Golden Globes than he's won Academy Awards. So there you have it. You know what? You you mentioned maybe what this could teach a class. Maybe it's just reading the room because Hollywood Foreign Press Association knew it didn't have any black members. I mean, how are they still kind of operating as if, oh, no one's maybe going to notice that? Well, I think everybody was in on the joke. Um, And it's great visibility for Oscar contenders because everybody looks the other way and keeps telling themselves they matter, they matter, until they start to believe the lie. I mean... Even NBC originally endorsed the HFPA's widely denounced diversity plan, but when everybody else said they were going to boycott, and that's Netflix, Amazon, Warner Brothers, actors like uh, Scarlett Johansson, Mark Ruffalo, NBC realized it was committing to an award show where there wouldn't be anybody attending. So I think that all played out pretty quickly, but everybody is known for a long time, and it was basically you scratch my back Uh, We'll scratch yours and we'll look the other way because this benefits both of us. You know, Golden Globes got millions of dollars from NBC. Uh, Studios got publicity for their films, maybe some Oscar momentum. Everybody knew it was a joke, but it was a joke that served everybody's purposes. By the way, John, I would have given Tom Cruise an Oscar for Magnolia. I would. Well, that was one of his Golden Globe wins. That and uh, Born on the Fourth of July, and the other will come to me in a moment. But Magnolia, I think. I think that would have been. Yeah, no. Now, okay, here's the thing, though, with award shows, John. I've never felt, even even before I started working here, you know, when I was like, I never felt 100% with award show because it's artists and their work being pitted against each other to figure out which one of them is the best, you know? But the pomp and circumstance of the awards always sucked me in, and I forgot about that part, right? But a lot about Hollywood has changed and is changing. So how do you think awards, John, fit into the Hollywood of 2021 and beyond? I mean, I think it's a really good question because this year's award season was obviously, you know, thrown into a big loop because of the pandemic. And yeah, there are too many award shows. But there's a fundamental question now is like, What are movies? I mean, the Academy changed its rules so that movies premiering on streaming platforms would be eligible this year, but I don't know if they'll be eligible next year. And so if you remove Netflix and Amazon and all the other streamers from the Oscars, you're cutting out about a third of the best movies made in any year. So what kind of award show is that? And yes, people pit against each other. And I, I get that it's a competition. It means a lot to some people, but The fact is there are too many award shows and the Oscar season lasts from the beginning of September with the Venice Telluride and Toronto festivals all the way now to April. And, you know, in the best times, maybe early March or late February, it's an endless ordeal and it 
probably needs to be truncated. And if shows like the Globes go away, it'd probably be a good thing. One more thing on this, John, because so when Oscar So White became a thing, a thing that, that had impact and, and real uh, influence, I, I'd ask creators, you know, of, of color, I'd say, well, you know, why don't you just just kind of reject what an award is and the process of getting an award and just make your stuff and, and not worry about that? And they said, well, yeah, you can do that, but also awards add a lot of weight to projects that you want to do, and they get you in rooms that maybe you wouldn't be able to get into uh, in the past. So when it comes to getting projects greenlit for creators of color, I mean, how necessary are awards now, considering there's streaming services, there's Netflix, as you mentioned, there's so much com- competition for talent and titles. I mean, I think it helps a lot, and it really helps visibility, and it's not that, you know, say, you know, a famous director is going to benefit from another win. Like, Tom Hanks doesn't need an Oscar. Scorsese. I mean, he's yeah. going to get anything greenlit, right? But, yeah, but I'm going to, and I hate to bring up the Globes as some sort of validation, but I remember talking to Rami Youssef not long ago about his show Rami, and he said the show had two launch dates. The first was when it premiered on Hulu in April of 2019, and the second, which he said actually brought in more viewers, was when he won a Golden Globe for Best <laughs> Actor in a Comedy Series. So, it's a joke, but it meant something. So, yeah, I think for lesser, you know, just emerging talent, it's really important. Uh, the fact that, you know, movies like, uh, I mean, you can name any kind of movies. I mean, this year we had, you know, so many actors of color nominated for Best Actor. Obviously, the, the big win did not go the way we thought it would. Yeah. And Anthony Hopkins won. But, yeah, it means a lot to people and it means a lot to studios. One more thing. Uh, not just the Golden Globes that won't be back on TV. Ellen DeGeneres said today that she's going to end her daytime talk show next year. That's a run of more than 18 years, over 4,000 episodes. Uh, John, what's behind that announcement? Well, it's not like advertisers or viewers or A-list guests were really running to the show. Uh, in an interview with a Hollywood reporter, Ellen said, I'm quoting her now, my whole being is about making people happy. And with a talk show, all I cared about was spreading kindness and compassion and everything I stand for was being attacked, unquote. And that makes it sound like she was some sort of innocent bystander. The fact is, she presided over a show that has been accused of having a toxic work environment. And she likes to end her show by saying, be kind to one another. And I guess that holds as long as you don't work on the Ellen show itself. In August, after an internal investigation, executive producers Ed Glavin and Kevin Lehman and co-executive producer Jonathan Norman were sent home. And I think the it's not my fault excuse is a little like Bob Baffert saying he didn't give Medina Spirit a drug <laughs> that wasn't allowed in the derby be like maybe a stable hand who's taking drugs peed on the hay and the horse ate it does anyone really buy that or that ellen didn't know what was going on on her own show one last thing john the career of actor norman lloyd he died last week at the age of 106 my goodness i get him a standing ovation for just that alone but uh you know he's probably best known for playing dr daniel oshlander on tv's uh saint elsewhere john that's only one small part of his acting career though yeah and he was married for 75 years that's got to be another hollywood record i mean charlie chaplin and amy schumer gregory peck and Harry Potter, I mean, Daniel Radcliffe, Orson Welles, and Judd Apatow. You know, you hear the term character actor thrown around a lot. And what it basically means is you're not famous, you're not exactly a leading man, but you're a talented actor who gets the work done. In fact, there was even a 2007 documentary on his career that was titled, Who is Norman Lloyd? But that's who he was. And I'll use a baseball analogy. He was the middle reliever. He was not the better known starting pitcher like Clayton Kershaw or a closer, God help us, like Kenley Jansen. But without that obscure setup guy, you're not in the game. Can't win the game either. And Lloyd was that kind of actor. So do yourself a favor and Google him and look at his picture. And the next time you see a character actor, put a face to the name or a name to the face. And you'll say, yeah, that's the guy. You didn't. You knew his face, but maybe not his name. And his name was Norman Lloyd. That's KPCC's John Horn. John, thanks a lot. My pleasure. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.